I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to this week's installment of Down the Pub. Slightly shuffled looking layout today. Uh, Zach's with us. Zach positively street today in a hoodie. How are you doing, Gabriel? I'm I'm down with the, what is it down with the homies down with the kids in it bruv trying to look like, like that <laughs> that is just the most dis- disturbing fucking thing I've ever heard in my life and I asked for it moving swiftly on John is back we haven't had John on in ages uh, have you been counting votes is that where you've been in Georgia <laughs> I've been using my Dominion machines to uh, change a few votes here and there. A lot of libertarian <laughs> votes turned up at the last moment. But uh, here, in, here in Atlanta, we cannot get enough of two things, COVID and elections. And we got five more weeks of elections and probably another three more months of, uh, of COVID. So we're all half, fat and happy here. So this is uh, two Senate runoffs, right? It is for, for uh, control of the Senate. So, so you can imagine monumental, how much money... Yeah, monumental importance, which means that everybody's in your state right now. Basically, we're making more money off elections than we do off uh, filming, which for Georgia, that's a lot. So they're all just flooding to your state to campaign and bringing COVID with them, is what you're saying? Yeah, they're bringing COVID with them, but unlike the film industry, we don't get to see like uh, you know Captain America and, and uh, Iron Man running around in Midtown uh, with explosions going on. Well, that sucks. We've also yeah. got with us today Clive, reigning champion. Clive. Hi, Alex. I, I love what you've got planned for tonight. You've just got ideas above your station now, and they're brilliant. I can't of wait. Of course, but even better than that is that my wife has now started listening to History Hack. She has. So Listen. she said she wanted to hear your victory, and you shat yourself. She's been listening to proper history ones and is really getting into it. She really enjoyed the... What about the Mosquito Coast? Because she's from Nicaragua, isn't she? Her mother was from Nicaragua, yeah. Yeah, so brilliantly, if we've got, well, there's about 300 episodes of actual history we can try and sidetrack her with, and hopefully by then she'll forget. Yes. Excellent plan. Uh, Chris is ill. He's either self-isolating because your ex-wife may have given you covid for your 40th birthday um and his kid is with him as well because you've got to self-isolate as well little josh haven't you <laughs> yeah yeah well um they came up for the weekend and then we got the message to uh, self-isolate and now they're refusing to go to bed <laughs> so you basically have got a license to sit with your boys in your pants watch star wars and play computer games for two weeks 
That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, and, they've and been. May be an awesome birthday present. Yeah, they seem to be enjoying it, don't you, boys? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. We also have James with us today. Uh, we decided to yeah. let him in out of pity, even though he's in tier three. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But hey ho, first of December, Christmas coming up. Got to stay positive. Rather you than me, I'd be COVID positive. loving the love in the room as always if your friends can't laugh at you in a pandemic when you've got it they're not your friends isn't that right lucky i would say so yeah um it's like lucky like minus one today because he's hung over and also he's judged lucky so he's got to be sensible it's true. I'm going to have to pay attention to everyone. And um, I, I'm, I'm kind of still a little bit chastened by my Frank Drebin um, imperson- impersonation last time, which thankfully wasn't recorded. But uh, note self, Bluetooth um, headphones have <laughs> microphones in them. Hit mute before going for a piss. Yes, that was outstanding. Where's that noise coming from? As Lockie taking his microphone to the toilet with him, uh, we probably still do have it recorded i'm not sure i didn't broadcast it i may keep that one for the outtake reel uh that is basically me and alina swearing uh, and the band of brothers actors swearing anyway alina is going to be your fellow judge tonight right alina yeah funny enough the dogs have decided to start playing just as i decide to unmute my mic ideal shoot them oh no they're my little babies Mm, whatever go on mute then i hate dogs i'm not moving in the slightest uh kate one tried to eat me i'm not apologizing kate in gibraltar slash pain hello still miserable down there yeah well i've been dodging the rain mostly and i've been making sure i don't have any fun after six o'clock so mostly i'm covid free i think mostly although if chris has got it and he got it from beth then technically um Clive's already made an outstanding dad joke about virus protection on computers uh, this evening. So if people do start showing symptoms, the pub may be where it's at. Charlie's with us today. She baked the world's biggest cake on camera earlier on. And I'm, I was kind of only half serious, not serious, about asking you where the leftovers are going. It's an enormous cake, yeah. It's three layers of chocolate cake ready to, um, to do tomorrow. Uh, and the neighbours are going to get fed until they explode. Brilliant. It's a fruit and nut cake, right? It is, yeah. It's chocolate mud cake with macadamia nuts and California raisins. Right. Yeah. Don't want to know what just happened below Lockie's waist, judging by the look on his face. Uh, Has everyone? Kate's going to drop it in a little. It's good while. cake. Yeah. <laughs> Other people are off adulting today, so let's get started. Um, today we are doing history's worst idea, um, and I, that was as much direction as I gave you because I thought it would be really funny. Um, uh, quite a few of you suddenly <laughs> revealed that you wanted to do Gallipoli. I don't know who's won that argument. Unsurprisingly, Zach was one of the people trying to steal it off of everyone. Um, so let's start with let's start with someone who I know isn't doing Gallipoli. Let's start with James. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to start off with a bang. So when I was looking at ideas, originally I was going to do the Bob Semple tank. But lucky for New Zealand, Australia have come out with a banger and topped them. So I'm going with Thomas Austin. Now, he was an ex-British, well, expat in about 1850s Australia. And in 1859, he'd got bored of hunting the Australian wildlife and he decided to ask his brother to import 
24 pairs of breed uh, breeding pairs of rabbits. So he wanted to release them. He wanted to breed them so he could go hunt all the little rabbits. At the same time, he decided to breed them with some domesticated local rabbits, which were mainly used for breeding and eating. This ended up creating jackrabbits, who were perfectly suited to the Australian climate. So he releases them all off thinking, OK, great, I will have things to hunt. But rabbits, they breed fast, they breed quickly. And a litter average of seven rabbits. The females can get pregnant immediately afterwards. Uh, rabbits can start breeding after six months. So with just by the 24 breeding pairs alone, just those 24 breeding pairs, you could have over 2,000 rabbits in a year just from them alone. So it became initially popular in the town. Uh, Prince Alfred, Victoria's daughter, came over around 1867 and went hunting with Thomas Austin. And in two days, they killed over 2,500 rabbits. In that year alone, Thomas Austin alone killed over 14,000. However, by this time, the local population realised this many rabbits was bad for the ecosystem and was starting to annoy their crops and getting their crops. And yeah, there was a lot of local government ideas to try and stop this. So you're looking about, he died in 1871 and the hunting stopped, so it got even worse. Okay, so one of the ideas that came out about this about 1901 was the idea for a fence. And this isn't just a small fence. This is Donald Trump border wall style of fencing. Over 1,500 miles of it was built across Australia to try and stop the rabbits. Now, the rabbits, they're wily little things. There was limited success and limited killings, but the rabbits managed to spread all over Australia. So by the time of 1898, the population is near 300 million rabbits compared to just over 3.3. Nine six million Australians. So by 1901, 25 million rabbits were being killed per year, but was little to no impact with the population. 1920 estimates of up to 10 billion rabbits, devastating the local ecology and environment. By 1940, this was down to 800 million after massive evidence eh, efforts to call the rabbits. However, over 150 years later, over 600 million Australian dollars spent at lower estimates, the rabbits are still around. The three native parrot species of Australia were all extinct. 23 of the 26 native tree species have gone extinct, all because Thomas Austin once bored and wanted to hunt rabbits. And as a final kick in the teeth, his widow, this wonderful woman, I think called Elizabeth Austin, used his money after he died to set up a hospital of incurable diseases. So patients of these diseases could go to this hospital when other hospitals wouldn't accept them. She's a wonderful woman who deserves more recognition. Unfortunately, she's overshadowed by her twat of a husband.
So that is history's worst idea. Importing rabbits to Australia just because he wanted to hunt. I'm fixated on one line that you gave us in that, which was Mm. that when the rabbits had sex, they can get pregnant straight afterwards. Yes, they can. We need to have a chat later on about (laughs) reproduction, because if not straight afterwards, when? Well, that's what I read on the rabbit breeding websites, which, trust me, that has really affected my Google search. (laughs) I'm going to draw some cartoons. We can have a chat later on. (laughs) Alina, any questions about the rampant rabbits? (laughs) We knew it was going to go smart straight away, didn't we? I'm not going to ask the sex question because I'm going to try and be a little bit professional. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good luck. I'm not going to be professional, but no, I'm curious to know, are they still a problem now in Australia? I mean, I don't know anything about Australia except for the scary spiders and, and evil snakes that are going to kill me. But yeah, my question is, is there still a problem now? Yes, they are still a very big problem now in Australia. And it's one of the reasons why they have such strict importation rules. But you ever see those shows where they're like, oh, no, you needed to declare this or you couldn't bring this in because it will devastate the local ecology. Yeah, the reasons for that is because of the rabbits. Anything else, Alina? No, I'm good. Cheers. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good if she only has one question because it means she wasn't massively excited. Uh, Lucky. Um, yeah, so like like you, one line in particular kind of caught my caught my ear a little bit, and that's um, the, the rabbits annoyed the crops. Oh, sorry, they they gnawed at the crops. They used to eat the crops. They, there's also something they do to trees, where it's basically they gnaw around the tree and it felled a lot of trees. I they can't remember what it's called. Kill them, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, no, it's a fairly simple one. It is a bad idea. And, you know, on, on, on the face of things, certainly by modern standards, the introduction of non-native species is pretty bad. Um, I think it's, it's a bit more than just they were, they were the hunting, weren't they? I think they were a food source, really. I mean, they're yeah, traveling Before off to some... he introduced them for hunting, there were cases where they were brought in for food. But these rabbits weren't released into the wild, the ones for food. They were domestically bred. They were kept in sections where they could not escape. But this was the first instance of a guy shipping rabbits over to breed them and then just release them into the wild. Did he like keep them in a fence or have some means of keeping them in an area that he could hunt? Because Australia being quite big, I think you just release them into the wild and they fuck off. You're, you're hunting potentially. Um, well, it's because he had so much land. Like it didn't matter. He had some, a ridiculous amount of land. Okay. And how how is the fence now? That fence, I I don't know. I have not looked it up. It was just, it baffled my mind that they had to build 1,500 miles of fence to try and stop the rabbits spreading to the rest of Australia. Is that Kenneth Branagh film, Rabbit Proof Fence? Like a docudrama about this? Maybe. Charlie, you're the film student. Yes, that's 100% accurate. I've not seen the film, but it would be brilliant. It should yeah, be made. It would it be great if it was just Kenneth Branagh with a really awful accent, like almost as awful as when he was Pyro chasing rabbits around. It would be awesome. But I'd pay to see that, especially yeah. if they shot it in Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Let's go to let's go to Zach because Zach always goes near the end. No, Zach's still eating his dinner, so we will go to. Let's do Kate. It's rather unnerving me, Kate, that your picture today is uh, the Pope. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I just, I feel I should ask Charlotte if she wants to go first because we kind of had a similar idea and I don't want to kind of tread on her toes too much. You can swap, um, if you want, that's fine. Yeah, is this is, we, we got chatting, didn't we, Kate? And we realised we were doing slightly similar things, but that they complement each other. So yeah, we felt them different Charlotte enough. Charlotte needs to go first then. Yeah. Go on then. I think it's only fair. <laughs> Okay, so first of all, an apology. I haven't done my usual level of intricate research this week because I'm on a deadline. So this is really... Because you've been baking a baby elephant. And because I had to bake a baby elephant of a cake, yes. So so I just thought I would riff on something that I think might be history's worst idea. And that is the Church of England. (laughs) (laughs) Now, bear with me before before all of our listeners you know scream heretic at at their their radio sets and um and denounce me as as devil incarnate. I should say that I am a confirmed member of the Church of England, and that is that is where I've grown up through so you know i this comes from a place of love, but I wonder if it was a very bad idea because we all know that the Church of England was founded on one man not wanting to be married to his wife anymore and wanting to be married to somebody else and the pope telling that maniac henry VIII, no you can't do that mate so of course henry having all the resources and and all the interest and and wanting to make this thing happen consults scholars theologians all kinds of people from all over the world the most intelligent minds that england had to offer at that time and he's sending people over to italy to to learn and to study and to find ways for him to put his marriage aside and this all culminates with henry breaking with what he calls the church of rome and setting up the church of england with henry as its supreme head of the church rather than the Pope, who he now calls the Bishop in Rome. So it started from that point from wanting to get out of a marriage. It's not a great place to start a major denomination from. And then he uses it to take apart the monasteries in England. And sure, there'd been a certain amount of, say, corruption going on in the monasteries, a lot of relics being sold. I mean, I don't know how many bones um, the saints had, but they had a lot of bones by the, the number that were being sold. But the monasteries provided a service in refuge. People who couldn't afford to feed themselves and their family could seek refuge at a monastery, or they could, in worst case scenario, if you can't afford to feed your children, they could go into service at the church and the monasteries and they'd be fed and looked after. And seeing this corruption and this evil that that Henry saw, he sends in Cromwell and his mates to take apart these corrupt institutions and give the money to Henry and his friends. So you're replacing one form of corruption with another. Now, I don't think the Church of England is really becomes a valid thing until you start getting the Bible in English and until people can read. 
because that's that's what makes the big difference is actually not having to go through bishops and and um, curates and people to read and translate the word of God to the people. Then they could read it themselves and interpret it themselves and make up their own minds. So that was the truly egalitarian moment, not the break from Rome. So why I wonder if the Church of England might be history's worst idea is just the division that it then built in this country. I mean, you, just from the, the obvious things, you get Mary the first, Bloody Mary decides, no, 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 we're going back to Rome. And if you don't agree, I'm going to burn you. And then you have Elizabeth come in and go exactly the other way, but I'm not going to burn people. Everyone can have freedom of conscience. Then later on, the Civil War, a lot of that was built around denominations and about rights to worship and the way that we worship. Because what had previously been agreed upon and standardized was all of a sudden open to interpretation so you've got the covenanters in in scotland and you've got the puritans in bog trotter um bits of east anglia like where i'm from and no one can agree and people fight and that's what then becomes to me a bad idea and it keeps going right until now the church of england is now probably the biggest one of the biggest churches globally because of you know um, empire and colonialism and it, it spread but I just wonder if from that moment in 1535 regardless of the good it's done since and all of that if it wasn't founded on history's worst idea discuss I do I like that idea Lockie yeah it's a strong no argument balls, doesn't right? it? am I going yeah. to hell Lockie not for this maybe <laughs> For um, making all of your neighbours hideously fat, maybe. <laughs> the 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 points about the kind of egalitarian elements and and the kind of I want to say like almost Lutheran reforms and um, I think are are true. But I I, I feel like the, the bad points that you've highlighted are, they're the work of people with agency. I don't think. They're, they're a point of principle on on the church itself, and, and part of Henry's argument was you know, you've got you got to think in, in kind of in the way they did then about you know the, why was a king a king because he'd been placed there by God, and if you know God's decided that Henry should be king, which we all knew to be true, and what does it matter what some bloke in Italy says? I I, I kind of um I'm almost with him in a way, um but. The, the conflict is undeniable and the way it gets used is is shocking so it's a it's a it's a it's a good case it's an interesting one because the Reform- reformation is continental in its beginnings anyway isn't it because you've got martin luther as well so although yes we it all came down to for us henry the eighth wanting to get his leg over mm. even without that can we say that britain wouldn't eventually have been swept up in other events that's interesting i mean the the joke has always been that we were going to leave anyway. So we found some principles and kind of got those. But it it does seem to be a very national characteristic that if something isn't how we want it to be, and if it's not working, rather than perhaps staying within said organisation, perhaps making it work, we go, no, we're out. See you later. Bye. You know what you mean. You know know (laughs) what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Alina? Um, I've got to tread carefully here. Living in Poland, I think you're better. Uh, yeah, living in Poland and, and being a Catholic, I've got to be very careful what I say. But um, 
British history, I'd like to say that it, it wouldn't be so bloody if it didn't happen, but would it be? It, it's a lot of what ifs right now for me in my mind. What if, what if it didn't happen? If it didn't happen, would Britain have such an interesting part of history? Would it just then just be completely and utterly dull? But I oh, do like God, Yeah, it wouldn't, you know, this is interesting, fascinating stuff. This is, this is why Channel 5 will constantly, and until we all die, make documentaries about this time. It's because it is interesting and divisive and, and so much of the foundation of what, what this country becomes um, based on that, that moment and those decisions. But that, that's just this sort of weird thought I had was, was, was it a good idea? Could we not have maybe worked with Rome and made, made, maybe made that more modern and worked together? But I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if what Lockie's point is, is that it's a, a big theoretical about how much better things would have been um, if we didn't have it, whereas some of the ones we might get given tonight will be actual, you can see just how shocking the knock-on effect was. I can certainly think of two that I know are coming, where the the evidence will be like extant of how shit a decision it was. <laughs> it's an interesting one, and I'm really interested now, thanks Charlie, um, to see when we move on to Kate, I, I think I know where Kate's going, and this one I think is really interesting. Okay, um... So I, yeah, I, I mean, I can think of lots of creations the world would have been better off without uh, the medieval rack, the atomic bomb, for example, but on a bigger scale than any of any of these is religion. Religions generally invent ideas rather than technologies. But like every other creative human enterprise, they've come up with some ideas that are really terrible. I feel like I should also have a disclaimer here. Um, I'm not personally religious um though i am fascinated by it but i do not believe that anybody anywhere regardless of their status or situation should ever be told what to believe or what to think um there are people all over the world i'm sure from every religion who are kind unprejudiced valuable members of society i'm not suggesting religion doesn't produce good it's just that the bad ideas are so bad Through the ages, religion has and continues to create concepts that promote subjugation, isolation, guilt, fear, blame, coercion, division, domination, vengeance and mass murder. Christians who declare themselves the chosen ones to the idea that God has given certain groups of people a promised land, despite the fact that said land may already be occupied by other people. Religion is full of inherently divisive ideas, ideas which suggest superiority, and imply that all others are doomed to burn in hell. Christianity blurs non-believers into sinners. Jehovah's Witnesses believe there's a special place in the afterlife that's only available to the best 144,000 souls. And there's the concept of dimitude in Islam, which teaches special rules for the subjugation of religious minorities. I should probably also apologise at this point for my pronunciation of some of the uh, words. (laughs) The idea that religion must be followed blindly without question. Certain concepts are off limits to any kind of criticism, debate or even question, unless you wish to be labelled as a blasphemer, infidel or heretic. The Bible prescribes death for blasphemers. The Quran doesn't, but death to blasphemers became part of Sharia during medieval times anyway. The idea that blasphemy must be prevented or avenged and heretics are an evil which must be neutralised has been responsible for countless horrors 
the conquest, isolation, domination, and at worst, mass murder of millions over the centuries. War is never a good idea, and giving it the prefix holy will not change that. And yet, the Sunni and Shia Muslims have been slaughtering each other for centuries. There were the holy Roman Crusades. The Hebrew scriptures recount battle after battle in which their war god, Yahweh, helps them to not only defeat but exterminate the cultures occupying their promised land. The medieval Catholic Church conducted a campaign of extermination against heretical Cathar Christians in the south of France, promising real Christians who signed on as crusaders land and possessions, in addition to a place in heaven and eternal life. Those ideas, which along with karma, have been used to control people's behaviour. As well as these promises, religion seeks to control people by blaming the victim. The idea that disease and disability is a physical manifestation of the evil committed in this or a past life isn't much consolation for a child with leukaemia or cancer or a severely disabled or disfigured person. But people were terrorised into behaving as the church desired. The idea of eternal life or reincarnation in some religions is so important that it degrades and diminishes this life. People become so preoccupied preparing for the next life that they miss out on this one. Then there's the idea of what will happen if people don't make it to their version of heaven. Whether we're talking about the Christian version of hell or Jahannam in Islam or Naraka for Buddhists and Hindus, an afterlife filled with demons, Monsters and eternal torture was the worst suffering the Iron Age minds could conceive and the medieval minds could elaborate upon. Perhaps invented as a means to satisfy the human desire for justice, the concept of hell quickly devolved into a tool for coercing behaviour and belief. Religion glorifies suffering. Monks secretly flogging their own backs and tightening their sillices isn't behaviour exclusive to Paul Bettany and the Da Vinci Code. A core premise of Christianity is the idea that righteous torture can somehow fix the damage done by sinful, evil behaviour. Millions of crucifixes litter the world as testament to this belief. And it's not just Christians. Shia Muslims self-flagellate, beating themselves with lashes and chains during Ashura. Self-denial, asceticism and fasting form some part of almost all religions. Think Lent, Yom Kippur, Ramadan. Whatever form it takes, surely no one can consider self-harm a good idea, let alone demand it in penance for perceived sins. This glorification of suffering as a spiritual good causes people to become more willing to inflict it, not only on themselves and their enemies, but also those who are helpless, including the ill or dying, think Mother Teresa. Infant circumcision in Judaism serves as a sign of tribal membership but circumcision also serves to test the commitment of adult converts. In Islam, painful male circumcision serves as a rite of passage into manhood, initiation into a powerful club. In some religious cultures, cutting away or burning the female clitoris and labia richly establishes the submission of women, the idea being to prevent sexual desire and arousal. This religious idea causes an estimated 2 million girls annually to be subjected to the procedure. I'm sure we can all imagine the consequences. While this is very extreme, the idea that men have a God-ordained right to effectively own women, giving them in marriage and taking them in war like possessions certainly isn't. Nor is the idea that men can exclude women from heaven and kill them if the origins of their children cannot be proven. Just look at Catholicism's obsession with the virginity of Mary, the female martyrs, and virginity in general. The idea that religion should have any say in how many children families have and when 
is absurd. Yet a Pope who claims to care about desperately poor families in Asia then lectures them against contraception, while Muslim leaders ban vasectomies and hysterectomies and encourage young couples to have more babies as a way to push back against, and I quote, undesirable aspects of Western lifestyles. What makes religion think it has the right to dictate to people in this way? If male ownership of female fertility and genital mutilation isn't enough, religion also came up with the idea of sacrificial murder. While this is becoming a thing of the past, and we don't tend to make human sacrifices on a regular basis anymore, there are still some religious groups, namely Muslims, who continue to ritually slaughter sacrificial animals on a mass scale during Eid, as well as a minority of Hindus during Gadhimai that they most now eschew the practice because it violates Ahimsa. So while the ideas promoted by religion have improved since the Middle Ages. Was that where we were? Yeah. We've done um, sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got sacrifice. <laughs> OK, so sorry, you'll be doing some editing. I do apologise. Right. So while the ideas promoted by religion have improved since the Middle Ages, sacrifice is less common. And most religions now give women at least some rights. Whichever religion and whatever era you look at, there are some common themes. Coercing, controlling, blaming, dividing, warring, mass murder. Surely anything which has, been his, which has historically been responsible for the misery, torture and death of millions and continues to cause suffering, hardship and death in every country in the world is surely a terrible idea. Uh, I think even if you're wringing your hands at the blasphemy of the argument, you cannot deny that was impeccably made and so well researched. And yeah, round of applause all round. Even Clive the Catholic is applauding you, Kate. Um, Thank you. Yeah, brilliantly made argument. Uh, Alina, you're really fucked now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am. Um, Really, really well made argument. You kind of made me self-doubt my own religion there for a minute. (laughs) She's now an atheist. Well done. (laughs) Oh shit! No, it's Maybe fine. Um, hurt you all, but just point out the perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it is all obviously. It's an argument that it's the worst idea. So obviously, we've not got any positives in there. So instead, I'm going to twist it and make it a little bit positive. Yeah, this is the thing with this one, isn't it? Can you take a terribly bad idea, but say the amount of good that's come out of it? The game, yeah, bad it's done. I mean, there is a lot of good. I'm going to, um, for my own historical part, I'm going to throw in my own history stuff here. Um, so, for example, I, I, well, in, in all honesty, I believe religion is inevitable um, as we look back in time, how far back in time we can go that religion was actually around. And it gives people something to believe in at the end of the day. But when it comes down to, for me, Second World War, Cold War, religion actually saved, so the Catholic religion saved a lot of lives in Poland during the Second World War. So, for example, priests were managing to hide people, sending messages, part of the resistance, and in the Cold War as well. So, for example, uh, John Paul II, I mean, you guys, even if you're too young to remember us being Polish, it's been like drilled into our brains since birth. You know, John Paul II, how much he did for Poland during the Cold War and how many, again, how many lives that, that did that save? Hmm. So there's, yeah. there's a bit of a positive spin on it for you. Absolutely. There is no there is no denying that religion has done countless good in the world. The only slight um, comeback I have to that, which which isn't a comeback really at all in 
the examples that you've given, but that sometimes the good done by religion is done in a, for selfish reasons. Um, I'm doing good because I want my place in hell or uh, in heaven. Sorry. <laughs> I'm doing good because I want my place in heaven or I'm doing good because I don't want to go to hell. Um, in the case of John Paul II and the Cold War and stuff like that, then sure, um, it's bigger than that. But so often, you know, the uh, the donations to charity or the helping the needy or the sick is uh, maybe was done in a selfish for selfish reasons. Lockie, what do you make of this? Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of going to be similar to Charlotte's in the sense that you know you're talking about a lot of human actions. You know, those kind of expedient actions where we help the sick in the hope that we're going to go to heaven. You know, we, the rich man builds arm, almshouses so that the poor people who live there pray for him and more prayers equals more chance of going to the good place. Yeah, yeah that's you know, a really good idea, isn't it? It's not really a good good way to live. Well, no, it's, it's, it's an expedient, but it's and, and it's kind of like a... Um, like a reputation laundering I, I almost want to say so yeah it, but the, the the fact is people get houses and things and so there's a positive that comes out of this you know religion and the same with like some of the fantastic works of art and sculpture and architecture you know amazing buildings yeah. that you know without a kind of unifying cause to get behind like religion we just wouldn't have and I think the world would be poorer for it um faith is scoffed at as well but it's very useful for a lot of people I, I, i'm thinking people like my grandparents generation possibly more than ours but um you know it, it does mean a lot to people and it provides a, a, a moral support when things seem tough and and the idea that things are going to get better if you if you live your life right and, uh, and are kind so you know all those kind of essential moral factors that that you know religion done right in inverted commas brings actually brings a lot of good uh, to the world so again all of these can be twisted um i'm kind of thinking of you know the it's in the book of mormon um you know the lads who kind of make up stories oh no you can't cut off a woman's clitoris because uh, god will zap you into a frog or something it's totally made up but Still sounds more realistic than Scientology, mm. though. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that was a, a, I just think a giant <laughs> lizard landed on the planet and told them to do stuff. It included not screaming during childbirth. Is that right? Oh, weird. Weird. I just think people should live a good life and, and do good things without the fear of going to hell if they don't. Well, true enough. Yes, absolutely. I think we can all get behind that. Funnily enough, I think that's actually addressed in the New Testament. Just being... <laughs> Be, be a good person and uh, you know say not a Bill and Ted quote as well <laughs> be excellent to each other be excellent to each other you know there was a piece on the news last night of um, of a church up up north north of the wall and um, they've been they've been feeding people who don't have any food because they can't work because of covid and they're actually going around to people's houses the uh, the priests from this church are going around to people's houses. They're making sure they've got food. They're giving them company if they're on their own. Um, and this community need the help of this church because they sure as hell aren't getting it from from the government. And uh, mm. they're, they're stepping up. They're stepping up and stepping in. And I think that is that's true altruism. They, they're doing it to serve. You know what someone's done at the end of my road, and it's so charming. It's like a little oldie woldy retro cabinet has been put out on the floor. 
um, and someone like uh, up against the garden wall and uh, it's got a note on it that says free pantry please help yourself and they stocked it and it's got little like jellies for kids in and some cans of soup and thing and I'm gonna go and put some stuff in it tomorrow it's just on the corner of the road up the top and people as they go past can help themselves I'm not saying that hooded scooter driving wankers in their teens won't steal it all in the middle of the night and lob the jelly at people's cars but it's just a nice idea right okay Kit has joined us and is ranting about Buddhism and volcanoes in the chat <laughs> we've missed you man classic kid. yeah that's that's just how I roll um no, you turned I mean, up exactly what, 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 when uh, when Kate started talking about female genitalia, though. It's like you've got a magnet. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 in there somewhere. It, it's, it's the clean signal. It, it sort of <laughs> <laughs> summons me from anywhere I emerge. Um, wow, I shouldn't have made that joke. It's way too early in the morning. God. <laughs> what is um, it, at 6am there? Are you still in South Korea then? I am, yeah. It's 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 five a.m. and I'm in Seoul, and that's why I'm coming up with absolute garbage out of my mouth. I apologise. Um, <laughs> I mean, incredibly serious one to sort of step into. But yeah, my first question was, what about Buddhism? I mean, what what, what have you got against the Eastern religions? Because it seemed mainly mention, to be against Christianity. I did mention Buddhism. Um, must have been before you joined. I think it was before the mention of genitalia um i did mention the fact that um buddhists and hindus have an afterlife filled with demons and monsters and so on and um that it was sort of maybe it wasn't invented as such but it became a a way of coercing behavior and belief you know if you don't be a good buddhist you'll go to hell Having said that having traveled around thailand and seeing how buddhism makes you act in real life uh, day to day, there's much that is admirable about that because that whole idea of the pantry thing—you just go into your temple and there's food in there and medication. I left my paracetamol yeah. stock for someone to help themselves to. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, think in Singapore, the Buddhist and the Hindu temples were so welcoming, and yeah, there was food, there was medication, there was everything. They they were very very gentle, kind people. Very, like, I well, think, funny seeing all the little Buddhist monk nov- novice people outside uh, on their iPhones. It's quite mm. amazing. Uh, Lockie, what do you, <laughs> Lockie we've, done, we've finished this one now, haven't we? We've done Lockie. Right, okay. No, God, yeah, very much. Okay, that was, uh, that, that's going to make other people feel slightly ashamed of how much prep they're doing, Zach. I'm looking at you. Um, but in fairness, he did realise he could think someone's idea again and have to go. Let's go to completely the other end of the spectrum, away from something that was arguably created to do good in the world. Uh, yeah, John, can you really say that about? <laughs> Fine, <that>? whatever. <laughs> you know, there's there's an we have. A, a, I think it was my brother's ex-wife was the queen of what we call GSBIs, good sounding bad ideas. That when you think when when you first hear them, they sound like they're okay, and then you look at them, and it turns out it's a really really horrible idea. Uh, we had in World War II an admiral. Uh, he was a, a named Ernest King. He was an anglophobe, uh, a womanizer, drank a lot. He was a, a real son of a bitch to everybody who worked with him. He ran our entire navy, and he used to tell his staffers who were afraid of him, for good reason. If I make a mistake, it's likely to be a big one. So I'm going to count on you to help me not make a mistake. Well, the mistake I'd like to talk about is, is on a grand scale, kind of along the same lines as, as religion that we've heard about. 
Uh, but before we get there, I'd like to talk about perhaps the way we can evaluate what is a truly bad idea. Uh, the first criteria I propose is that it has to be inherently flawed. Second, that it was implemented badly. Third, that it has side effects that were unintended by its, its original creators. Uh, and finally, that its virtues do not outweigh the, the bad that it's done. And taking all of these factors into account, I propose that the history's worst idea is Soviet communism. Um, there are a lot of different interpretations of communism. There's, of course, uh, you know, different branches of Marxist-Leninism. But I'm talking about the, the Soviet communism that started approximately 1917, 1918, really implemented about 1918, up through 1990, approximately. Now you've got Alina is on mute, but she's going whoop whoop in the background. <laughs> How did you know this? You can what? read my mind. <laughs> I just know you too well. Well, well, the pro the first problem with with that type of communism and uh, is that the idea goes against human nature. The idea is basically an oversimplified, but it is basically at its core. I'm going to give up some of my hard earned shit to somebody else, and the idea is we're going to be equal. We'll live in an equal society. And, of course, human nature being more uh, accurately described by Adam Smith, uh, you know, 100 years, 100 some odd years earlier, is really that people are innately selfish. And if you, if you leverage their innate selfishness, you're going to get farther. Um, the idea that the Soviet communists uh, adhered to resulted by the 1970s in a sort of egalitarian society that wasn't really egalitarian. Uh, it's one where you might have a, the head of a factory who makes the same pay as the janitor at the factory. And that seems very egalitarian. But the head of the factory also gets a dacha, a driver, access to good food, connections, and other kind of perks of the job that really makes the idea something that just isn't isn't working in practice and that's because it goes against that human nature of if we've got our shit you know we we if we have our 6000 books we'd like to keep them unless there's something in it for us as a general matter there's there is of course a lot of altruism there is uh you know religious motivated altruism just innate goodness but in general from a societal standpoint the idea was flawed the implementation was worse, and we're really talking about a group of guys in Soviet Russia, uh, Marx, Stalin, or, or, or I mean, sorry, Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, and, and those groups who implemented communism in a way that made, gave it some aspects of the, the worst aspects of religion. Uh, the commitment to communism, the way they implemented it in the Soviet Union was absolute. It was intolerant. This is a class war. Uh, one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose. And if we start to lose, it's not because our idea is flawed. There is a lack of, of self-awareness here. It's because there were counter-revolutionaries, foreign and domestic. We need to find those people and eliminate them from society. Now, Marx originally thought that wealthy industrial societies would be the ones most where communism would be most successful. Russia in the early 20th century was more of an agrarian society overall. It had pockets of industrial areas, 
but not very many of them. Uh, but but the Russian, the Soviet communism took hold in places like Russia, China, Cuba, Vietnam, and we'll talk about a couple of those in a few minutes when we get to side effects. But the idea was not ideal, and then its implementation was one that demanded that you go against human nature, and there are going to be a lot of people who, do because of their human nature, are not going to sign on to that sort of system without coercion. And so what did that lead to? The implementation of Soviet communism led to purges like the Red Terror in 1918 to 1920. Um, different estimates about the number of people killed, but between whites and Cos white, white Russians and Cossacks, probably around 500,000 is a number that gets to kind of the center of the estimates. Uh, the great purges of the late 1930s, also in the name of eliminating enemies of the state. Uh, different estimates, but they tend to gravitate toward 950,000 to 1.2 million. Uh, Yale University's uh, professor Timothy Snyder estimated that under Stalin, there were about 9 million killed, including through famine. Um, other estimates run up into the 20 millions. Uh, ethnic cleansing. Once communism began to push its way outside the Soviet border, the Russian borders, uh, then you get to the ethnic, ethnic cleansing of Poles in 1938, or 37 to 38, uh, the Katyn massacre of 1940. You get to uh, ethnic cleansing of Crimean Tatars and Mongolians during the 30s. And so the implementation of a system that goes against human nature and requires you to be devoted to this new system is going to require you to eliminate a lot of people who are not going to be willing to, to join up. You've got the side effects. Um, what happens when this idea of Soviet communism spills across borders? Uh, China is a good example. Uh, on History uh, Hack podcast a while back, uh, Alex and Alina hosted uh, Sergei Redchenko, who talked about the Sino-Soviet uh, relationship. And China viewed itself as the elder brother, but the USSR was the father. And this was all through a relationship of communism. Well, what did Big Brother do? In 1949, in the initial wake of the Chinese Revolution, roughly a million-plus counter-revolutionaries were liquidated. Uh, Mao Zedong uh, implemented the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76, roughly another one and a half million killed. You've got Tibetan repressions. Uh, that was a small number, about 100,000 killed, but that was out of, one point, or out of 6 million people. So that's a 1.6% of the population. Uh, Professor Stephen Karatkin of uh, Princeton estimated that overall communism led to the deaths of somewhere around 65 million people between 1917 and, uh, and 2017. A lot of other estimates, and these are not people who are conspiracy theorists hiding in basements, coming up with manifestos. These are, these are history professors. They run into the roughly 100 millions if you include the all-ins of things like the Ukrainian famines and uh, the, the Cambodian uh, uh, genocide, which took about 21 to 24 percent of Cambodia's population in the 70s. Uh, North Korea, perhaps a million people killed, according to an Indiana University professor, uh, R.J. Runnell. Uh, Vietnam, another 100,000 to 200,000. Um, and these were all premised on Soviet-style communism, 
not the kind of nice communism that we see in universities. So the final area to look at when assessing communism, like any other sort of religion, the secular religion here, is did it have virtues um, that, that at least may, uh, mitigated the, the bad stuff? Um, it, it, it did create a slightly longer, uh, a longer lifespan, life expectancy. If you were a uh, Russian in 1910 in Russia, your, your uh, life expectancy was going to be in the 30s. It, uh, by, the, by the 1970s, they were up to the high 60s for your life expectancy. But then again, other countries, the competitor countries, the capitalist countries also had longer lifespans during that time frame. Uh, communism did not create stronger economies. They ended up getting beaten by their, their uh, competitors. And unlike, uh, unlike religion, you don't see a legacy of universities, orphanages, homeless shelters, hospitals, or, or philosophical thought that really survives. It was, it was almost more like the, uh, the, the Genghis Khan's empire that kind of came and went without really leaving a cultural impact. In the end, Soviet communism made a backwards country less backwards, just like all the other countries were, but it did it at a cost of millions and millions of lives. And we're not talking about lives from a thousand years ago, you know, the Middle Ages, the Spanish Inquisition, we're talking about within our lifetimes. So that's my vote for history's worst idea, or maybe it's worst good sounding bad idea. Yeah, just when you thought you couldn't get any grander than religion. Uh, well done, John. God, this is like a heavyweight contest. <laughs> cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And... <laughs> um. Alina, I'll let you go first because I know you're going to want to rant about Soviet communism. I'm not. Do you know what? I'm not. I'm going to take a step back and not rant and say, John, question. Did you know I was going to be judging, first of all? Uh, no. In fact, Alex had told me, Alina, that you were no longer a part of History Hack and that I shouldn't have any communications with you. So I didn't realize yeah. that. Right. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we're on the same page. That's perfect. Um, bloody well good awesome argument i love it i absolutely love it communism you love is... it so much that you've gone proper east london D- did i oh, that shit. was well good bruv shit. <laughs> <laughs> please please um apo- i'm making apologies for my horrible horrible east london accent that has just apparently come out um yeah that's brilliant argument loved it. it it did it caused so much death around the world soviet communism is the root of all evil in my opinion and um sorry zach he, he, john might be winning but i know you've got something interesting to say but you know 
John's up there. And I loved everyone else's arguments. You're all lovely and awesome, but I'm really sorry. I'm being sort of a bit biased right now. Yeah, it's going to take quite a lot to beat that in her ideas because, my God, can this woman hold a grudge? Okay, Uh, Lockie. Yeah, um, so I also liked the argument um, uh, and and there's a, a lot to agree with. I kind of, I find myself... By trying to find a counterpoint, trying to think of ways or, or, or reasons why at least people thought it was a good idea, you know, and, and, and for those who emerged from the Second World War with memory of the First World War will have seen Russia transformed from a country which loses a war to Germany to a country which utterly crushes Nazi Germany. Um, which which would have seemed like the, the, the most terrible enemy anyone's ever seen. And so you, you've got a pretty strong thing to point at for, for you know, being positive about Soviet communism. Um, of course, the cost <laughs> doesn't really um, add up in the same way, unfortunately. And, you know, you, you end up sort of saving your country from one very terrible thing only to sort of reinforce something that's all as bad really um uh, i think you you're dead right about the kind of the the class war and the fact that you know it, you know i think stalin himself possibly accepted that people do want things uh, as well so um it, but he didn't have the kind of moral he wasn't like an exceptional leader you know his rise to power is not one of uh, some great man of, of standing providing some inspirational leadership he he connives his way to the top and 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 his regime is then um a reflection of that really so i agree with you in many ways yeah it's a strong one it's it's something you're right andy about uh you know the way uh russia became industrialized by, and it became a true superpower. And that, that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, it, it was industrialized at great cost. Um, but it also started from a very low bar as well. It, it was the, the Tsarist uh, Russia empire was, uh, it, it was backwards in a lot of ways. And so uh, it, it is, it's tough to say, well, this portion of progress in a capitalist country or a communist country is, was driven by its unique virtues of capitalism or communism and not just by the march of progress and technology that kind of pervades the, the world in general. It pervades humanity. Yeah, and, and, and just as a sort of you know, final point, if I can have one, um, the, the point that you make that, that sort of sets it apart from the religious discussions that we've had is that you know, I could quite easily point to several good things that we, we could immediately highlight as, as being a product of you know, religion or religious thought or religious unity, whereas very little exists in the same way from, from Soviet Russia and from those European states that were very heavily influenced. It's not well. even a Sistine Chapel, is there? No. Not even something pretty you can look at. Nope. There's nothing pretty with communism. All right, rein it in. Got some nice murals of people like punching at the sky and all that stuff. Yeah, some good sculptures. Yeah, the the uh, the subway stations. Yeah, Moscow Metro, arguably the only decent thing you can say about Soviet communism. Who knows? Right, okay, let's move on before Alina gets really carried away and starts ranting in Polish. Uh, let's go to. Chris. Sorry, sorry, we're shepherding a monkey. Um, okay, on uh, the grand scale of things, 
compared to religion and communism, mine's really not that big a bad idea. Um, I love this happens with but you. It's in my lane, week. and you start off confident, and then everyone else talks, and you'll go, "Oh, mine sounds really shit now." Should we let him go first next week? <laughs> yeah, we'll let yeah. you go first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one, one of my bad ideas was doing this with my son in the room. Go to bed. Um, right. No, okay. Just children in general. Um, the other bad idea. Well, no, they're, they're partially good idea. But, um, <laughs> the other bad idea about this is uh, Alina's going to hate it. It's on boats. So, ah, in uh, August 1914, uh, Vice Admiral von Spey was the commander of the German East Asian Squadron based in Tsingtao in China. Um, obviously th- thousands of miles away from where all the action was in the North Sea and um, with the rest of the German fleet. And the only um, aid from any um, allies he could have was a very ancient uh, protected cruiser from Austro-Hungary, which was of no tactical value. So he he had a choice of what to do with his ships. He realised very, very quickly that the allies um, were going to come for him and Tsingtao. And the British had the uh, battleships, pre-dreadnought battleships, Swiftshore and Triumph in the area, and uh, the really good armoured cruiser Minotaur. And to the south, they had the Australian um, HMS Australia um, battle cruiser. All of these ships ultimately superior to him. So he knew that any kind of action in the Pacific would see him ultimately losing. So he was left with two choices, either head across the uh, Indian Ocean to Africa, uh, carrying out cruiser warfare as he went, or going across the Pacific towards South America and trying to make a home run for Germany. Um, He decided that cruiser warfare wasn't really for him. Uh, Existing as pirates was not very um, German admiralty. And um, he also believed that the amount of coal that his armoured cruisers, Scharnhorst and Eisenhower, would require, uh, that he wouldn't be able to generate that. So he decided to head for um, South America, leaving the Emden behind as a distraction. Um, so they, as they cross the Pacific, uh, in mid-September, they get uh, news that uh, the, um, the colonies have fallen very quickly. Japan has joined with the Allies. Tsingtao has gone, is uh, encircled. And um, New Guinea has fallen, and Samoa as well. This kind of annoys the Admiral a little bit that all these German colonies, which are technically under his protection, have collapsed within within days. So he turns Scharnhorst and Neisnau round and they sail 1,500 miles in the wrong direction to uh, get to Samoa, um, where they arrive on the uh, 14th of September, uh, missing the uh, Allied invasion fleet by three days, um, and find it under New Zealand control. Uh, the Germans look at the shoreline and decide attacking this is a bad idea, which it was. So they turn around and continue. Uh, they had a, an abortive raid on um, Tahiti, in which the French set fire to their coal reserves before the Germans could land. And in the end, they occupy Easter Island, which is possibly the greatest achievement during the, uh, the riser period. Um, they then meet up with the cruiser Leipzig, which brings supply ships, and the cruiser Dresden, which brings the ultimate pig, Tirpitz. Um, and then they move on to South America, where a plan is being hatched that they would have enough contacts along the um, east coast of America, South America, to provide them with coal and food supplies as they go up north through the Atlantic. They pick up the cruiser Karlsruhe, 
and make a shot for Germany. Um, they cr- off Valparaiso in Chile. They br- run into Craddock's fleet, sink it at the Battle of um, Coronel, and they then head south. But but von Spee is still is still rankled by Samoa falling, and so they, he comes up with this idea to um, wreak revenge upon the arrogant British. They're going to stop at the Falkland Islands. The um, Neisnau and the Nuremberg will break off from the fleet. Nuremberg will go into the inner harbour, whilst um, Neisnau sits in the outer harbour. They'll sink all the ships. Large squadrons, squads of German marines will go in by boat, steal all the coal, take out any military facilities, arrest the governor, put him back on the Neisnau, and then the ships will sail to Germany with this new prisoner. It's not much of a, a military victory, but they see it as a way of really rubbing it in the in the um, in the eyes of the, of the British. Yeah. Yeah. Shush. <laughs> um, half is half is uh, he pitches this yeah. to his captains, yeah. and half of yeah. them say it's yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. But von Spee, yeah. Yeah. no, this is what we're going to yeah. do. Yeah. So in yeah. the morning of the eighth of December, yeah. Yeah. the uh, now and the Nuremberg yeah. 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 are uh, advancing on yeah. the island whilst the main German squadron holds off. The, um, as they approach the island, they see smoke on the horizon. And they think, oh, no, the British know we're coming. They're, um, they're burning their coal reserves. That's when Neisnau gets hit by a, a shell from a British battleship. Um, the Canopus was, had been turned into a fortress and had been um, beached, uh, sighted the Germans coming, fired off a couple of rounds and raised the alarm. Von Spey um, relies on uh, a lookout report from the Neisnau that said that he saw tripod um, masts in the harbour. It's all right, the Queen-class pre-dreadnoughts, we can outrun them. So he turns away, sends his uh, supply ships off to the south, and he heads west, east, sorry, um, to try and hit out into the blue, out into the deep blue, wait for the heat to cool off, and then they were going to turn north. Unfortunately, um, the British had enough time to finish their breakfast and the battle cruisers, Inflectable and Invincible, powered off after them with, uh, with their armoured cruisers and light cruisers. And what ultimately followed was, could be optimistically called uh, a massacre. Um, Scharnhorst and now decided to buy uh, the light cruisers' time with their lives, turned to face the battle cruisers, fired beautiful ripple shots, Unfortunately, the eight-inch shells uh, bounced off all the armour of the battle cruisers, and the uh, like this bit. The British twelve-inch penetrated the German armour quite successfully, like as if they were made of um, China. Scharnhorst went down uh, with her entire crew, her guns still firing. Nice now rolled over not long after that, with only 188 men um, being fished from the water. Uh, the light, light cruiser Leipzig uh, was the next to get caught up by the armoured cruiser Cornwall and the light cruiser Kent. Um, only about 17 of her crew was survive, survived from that. Nuremberg's boiler blew up, and despite a lucky shot that almost sank the Kent, also went down with only seven men being pulled alive from the, from the water. In total, 2,200 German sailors were killed that day, including von Spey, all of his captains, and um, only the, only the uh, Dresden managed to escape. Um, also, von Spee's two sons, Heinrich and um, Otto, went down with the, with the Neisnau and the uh, Nuremberg. Um, so ultimately, my argument for it being a bad idea was that in one, what should have been a nice safe gamble resulted in the complete loss of his squadron, 
including two of his three supply ships, and um, ultimately won nothing for Germany and undid all the work he'd done over the last three months of keeping his, his men alive and hidden from the Allies. Well done. Alina, are you awake? I am awake. Um, there's a few things that have distracted me. Uh, your child is incredibly amusing. Um, <laughs> so for a section of that, uh, I just wanted to go, you're all right, little one, for most of that. Uh, yeah, sorry, the East London came back out again. Um, <clears throat> I, I really can't, I blame Alex, it's all her fault. Um, and then you mentioned the word penetration. <laughs> And then I got lost from there. So, but it sounded really tragic because people died and it sounded very messy. And I'm sure Lockie's going to help me out here because it's Boaty, it's World War One, and I need some help. Uh, yes. Well, Boaty <laughs> things in the First World War are not really my lane, but I'm not completely without um, knowledge. Just, just to be clear, what we're saying is the bad idea it was the decision to advance on the Falklands in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Just right. with a lengthy preamble to that. <laughs> yeah, um, an excellent professionalism, by the way. I, I, I did kind of had in, in mind um, the, the 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 event when the guys being interviewed and the children come running in the uh, the and then start jumping around. <laughs> yeah, um, had that kind of air to it. Um, uh, yes, this seems like a bad idea. It's possibly you're right. I don't think it's quite on the scale of Soviet communism, but as a um, Clive's uh, doing the kind of "Mm, not sure I mean yeah there's very little redeeming features I think um, the old quote about the German surface raiders out and about being described as like a cut flower you know they're they're very pretty but they're going to have a pretty short life expectancy um, because yeah when you nail a a British cruiser squadron you can be pretty sure half the fleet's going to be sent to uh, to sort you out so probably the most sensible thing they could do would would, would have been run, run for their lives uh, I would think. Von Speyer, they didn't believe that the British would uh, retaliate so quickly, um, but they took so long to get around the Cape. Um, it took them a month. Because the coronel was on the 1st of November and they didn't get to the Falklands till the 7th, of, 7th or 8th of December because they stopped to re- resupply and things and went the long way around the Cape, closer to Antarctica as possible. They just weren't expecting um, Sturdy's force of battlecruisers to be there that quickly. So, I mean, the battle cruisers themselves, would the, would the German cruisers have any kind of, they wouldn't have been able to outrun them, couldn't, couldn't outrange them with the guns, and as we've discussed, no. when, when their own shells do actually hit the British battle cruisers, the shells bounce off. Yeah, so yeah they, is, they were completely outclassed. This is, this is kicking a midget, isn't it? This is... Yeah, the, 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 apparently the Germans fought well and uh, their volley, because the, the East Asian squadron actually won the Kaiser's Cup for gunnery. So they were the best gunners in the German Navy for like two, three years running. And they, they put up a good thing, but it just wasn't doing any any damage whatsoever. Against some of the armoured cruisers, they might have stood a chance, but um, against the two battle cruisers, it was pretty much game over. Yeah, I think that's certainly a whoops moment. Definitely, but possibly not the worst idea ever. But still, another good argument made. Right, okay, God, we're flying through this tonight. Um, let's go get some drinks, and then we'll come back. Right, okay, let's go to Zach. Right, well, I've become a victim of my own success as the baby-faced villain down the pub this week. I was going to do Gallipoli, which was an idea that I'd stolen from my family, so don't worry, I was still in form. But it then turned out that Dorman was going to pill for it, and then didn't bother to turn up. 
And then Chris also wanted to do it. So I thought, well, it's got boats in it. So Alina will hate it anyway. And so it would be church to kind of cry about it. And now nobody's gone and bloody done it. But I've got something that Alina is going to love because it's got Polish history in it and everybody dies at the end. I'm talking about Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. Now, before we start, Alina, do you know who Napoleon is? Uh, he's that guy with the hat. More or less, yeah. Uh, it was worth checking, though, because you did confuse Napoleon and Wellington in the night, and it did make Marcus cry. <laughs> now, in 1811, Napoleon was more or less at the height of his power. He had an empire that stretched from Spain to the Russian border and as far south as Rome. And his only real enemies were Spain, Portugal and Britain. So nothing much to worry about. The trouble was that Napoleon at times was a bit of an egomaniac and he tried to dictate the economic policy of an entire continent in the form of the continental system, banning everybody from trading with Britain. Although Russia initially agreed with this, they kind of got bored of being told what to do by the Corsican emperor and decided they weren't going to listen anymore. Napoleon got a bit hacked off and did the classic Napoleon thing of trying to force people to do what he wanted by just invading and dominating them. He therefore assembled a Grand Armée, one of the largest armies ever known at that point in history. Half a million men, including 400,000 French, the remainder coming from Germany and Poland. Hooray, we have some Polish history. Not sucking up to the judge at all here. The Poles at this point were indebted to Napoleon as he'd formed the Grand Duchy of Warsaw in 1809, which is why they contributed troops. Now, there aren't many rules in warfare. The ones that exist are usually quite basic. Occupy the high ground is one of them. Numbers alone are not necessarily an advantage is another. But one of the biggest is you don't invade Russia. By this point, the Russian commanders had fought Napoleon a few times. They knew that if they faced him over from battle, he'd beat them like a drum. The French army was too good, Napoleon was too skilled a commander, so they decided not to give him what he wanted. They refused to fight him, and in the process, they played him like a violin. Napoleon's invasion began in late June 1812, and straight away it hit problems. The roads into Lithuania, which is where they were advancing first of all, were barely dirt tracks, and supplying troops instantly became a problem. The heat was horrendous, and the men began to drop from exhaustion. Within four days, he reached Vilnius, having left 10,000 dead horses behind him. Can I get an R from everyone in the pub for the dead horses? Otherwise, Warhorse Lucy will be coming for you. Aww. One person. Charlie, Aww. you're brilliant. The rest of you, get out. I care. I just care. <laughs> Napoleon decided to push on, though. At some point, he really should have stopped, considered his opinion, and thought about resupply. But as the Russians kept withdrawing, and attempting to implement a scorched earth policy and refusing to commit to a battle that would lead to the destruction of their army, Napoleon allowed himself to just be sucked into the Russian heartland. Nobody really knows what he was on at this point. The, the kind of the imagination of the guy seemed to desert him. He seems to have vaguely been aiming to reach Moscow, where he'd planned to spend the winter. Eventually, the Russians decided that they couldn't give up Moscow without a fight. So they did turn and do the kind of early 19th century equivalent of saying, come at me, bro, because I'm still gangster to money. At Borodino in September 1812. Borodino was a bloodbath. It's one of the great shit show battles in history. Described as one of the bloodiest days of the Napoleonic Wars with around 70,000 men killed or wounded across the two sides. Napoleon actually did very little. 
Marcus, if he was here tonight, would say that Napoleon sat there and sulked. The more sympathetic might suggest that he had a bit of a headache. When the opportunity came to break the Russians towards the end of the battle, Napoleon was asked to commit his elite bodyguard, the Imperial Guard, to finish it. These were the best troops in the army. They were perfect for the job. He refused. The Russians nominally lost. They had more dead and they had to withdraw after the battle. But the point was that Napoleon hadn't achieved his crushing blow. The Russians were still in the fight and they weren't coming to the negotiating table. They pulled back, allowing Napoleon into Moscow on the 14th of September. But they didn't just let him have it. They burnt the entire city to the ground, denying it to him. Napoleon could not believe it, seeing his plans to spend the winter literally going up in smoke around him. With supplies running out and with no hope of staying until the summer, Napoleon had no choice but to cut and run for the safety of Poland. In the end, after a certain point, he actually just abandoned his army and literally fled back towards Poland. As the army began its retreat in mid-October, the snow began to fall. We all know how these things play out. You don't want to be stuck trying to withdraw an army through the middle of a Russian winter. There was very little food. The conditions were sub-zero. The Russians harried the French every step of the way. Men dropped dead of starvation or having frozen their bollocks off, quite frankly. In the end, a mere 50,000 men made it out. That's just 10, 10% of the original force. 90% of Napoleon's army was dead or a prisoner of war, having gained literally nothing. In the years that followed, Napoleon tried to rebuild his army, but Europe had been galvanised against him. They had seen his elite force crushed, reduced to a, a slither of its former self. Austria and Prussia joined the war with Russia in 1813, defeating him at Leipzig, and in 1814 uh, forced him to abdicate. Importantly for Lina, Poland was then dismembered in the subsequent peace settlement and split between Russia and Prussia. So there you have it, an idea so bad that it led to the destruction of one of the best armies in history in one of the most costly campaigns in history, which directly led to the collapse of an entire empire, one of the greatest empires that had been seen since the Romans. Without the invasion of Russia, Napoleon's empire could have endured. Instead, it crumbled into the dust along with Moscow. Uh, and Marcus isn't here to do an evil panto laugh at the end of that, um, which is a shame. Uh, let's go to, I like this one, uh, because you're right, if there's one mantra in military history, it's don't fucking invade Russia in winter. Uh, and people just continue to do it. Alina. Zach, I've, I've got to say, very well done. First of all, I do love when you argue, love it. But also those special attentions to detail, very smart. Um like kissing your ass. Yes, yes. Uh, it makes me feel special. Um, actually, to be honest, I did message Lockie saying that I do love this idea because it is just complete stupidity because it gets repeated um, not very long afterwards, really, does it? With um, Mr. World War II Hitler. Um, I don't really have any questions because I do like the argument. And, I have a question. Yeah. Mr. Mr. World it. War II Hitler, is that, is that what we're calling it? Not that sure is, many people like have heard of that. terminology there, yeah. I just, I just <laughs> didn't want to be like... <laughs> that we've got a Second World War historian to clarify some of the technical points. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't want to be that bell-end Hitler. I mean, we've got, there's children in the room, I can't be swearing. I already got told <laughs> off by Clive. <laughs> um, so I tried I have, to be nice. 
I have some questions. Um, I, 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 obviously, it, it does get shown quite often that invading Russia is not, not a good idea. Invading the Russian Empire, they've got quite a lot of ground to fall back on. But the Germans did it successfully in the First World War, so it can be done. It took a, it took a, a lot to do, but actually kind of the scarier front was the Western Front in the, in the First World War, different in the Second World War, clearly. But, yeah, so the idea itself, I'm kind of going to come back to sort of one of John's points about, you know, it's the implementation and the execution that's, that's possibly the bad idea. And maybe flip it around a little bit and say, was it just that Napoleon's idea and execution was bad? Or do the Russians play their part and perform very well and use their assets well? I think it's kind of the fact that the Russians realise they don't have any assets. Because on paper, this should have been kind of a, a walkover for Napoleon. Had he got his head in the game... He should have been able to find a way with a force of half a million men to kind of encircle the Russian force, leave them with nowhere to go, and then annihilate them, which was kind of how he liked to operate. He does it on many other occasions. With this campaign, he just kind of seems to be a little bit more passive. And so the concept could have worked, but I think it is in the implementation. Um, but, I mean, you've got to look at a map, surely, and think he ends up in Moscow and hasn't at some point in the intervening period of time when he's marching across half a continent found a way to encircle these people and actually complete the the plan it, i just think it's a, a, a piece of piss poor work are there any kind of redeeming features you know how, how far away from the napoleon of austerlitz is he you know in, in terms of generalship at least yeah it's it's a million miles it's almost like you've got different people in the room i mean we always talk about waterloo and how the Napoleon at Waterloo it is nothing like the Napoleon that you've got at, say, Auslitz. Um Now, people will debate about to what extent the other people really deserve the credit for Auslitz, but I mean, I ran a poll recently. People still think Auslitz is the dog's bollocks. So um, it, it, it's a world away. It genuinely is. Um, you've got Napoleon really struggling for imagination and during Borodino, doing literally nothing, sat in his tent, well away from the action, and, and Marcus isn't kind of a world away from the truth when he says sulking. You know, he just refuses to take any active, proactive part. You know, this is not the Napoleon that we see um, for much of his early career, whether it's in the early Italian campaigns, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in, in the 1805 campaign that leads to Auslitz. You know, we're talking about a completely different animal here. And if you are past your best, surely the mark of a smart individual is to realise that you can't do this. And therefore, invading a country probably isn't the smartest move in the first place. Okay, I've got one, one last question. And, and it's essentially, did he have a choice? Um, in the sense that the Russians were kicking against, uh, were openly kicking against the continental system um, by this stage. And that's undermining Napoleon's authority on top of the peninsula campaign wearing on, further undermining of, of his authority and domestic strife. You know, he's a great general, but he's no administrator back at home and people are kind of losing the love a little bit. Did he have a choice? The thing about Napoleon is that he always likes to let his guns do the talking rather than the diplomacy, in my opinion. People turn and smack me and go, oh, you're just an arrogant brute. Um, but Napoleon is never really one to try diplomacy first and then resort to war. He always likes war first because he's, he's normally quite good at it. Um, the other thing to bear in mind about Russia is that, the Russian campaign, is that Russia at that particular moment in time 
was not at war with him. And he did have a war on his hands, as you say, the Peninsula War. You don't start up a war on two fronts. It's just bad business. So on many levels, I, I think he did have a choice. You know, try speaking to these people. Try not dictating the economic policy of an entire continent. That, that's probably an idea. Yeah. Um, look at whether or not you could end the Peninsula War and secure peace. Because um, if you're not at war with Britain, then you don't need to stop everybody from trading with her. Um, so that would be my response. Brilliantly, uh, the attention of every female in the room has wavered because Kit's uh, been massaging his nipple while you've been giving us that treatise on European economies. Uh, in the hey, I have that effect on people. Yeah, I said he looked like uh, Kate Winslet posing in Titanic and he started to uh, to sort of massage his uh, own bits, which was quite amusing. Well done for staying on track while that was happening in your face. Uh, I, I, really I was completely that oblivious. Yeah. <laughs> It wouldn't be the first time, would it? I think when you were talking as well, it also sounded like a World War Two air raid uh, siren started going off, which yeah, either we've all drunk. That's my laptop. Sorry. Oh, is that your lap, your twelve-year-old laptop trying to stay switched? I'm not off? about to get bombed. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's move on to Kit, who's going to do the whole thing whilst reclining in a bed in Seoul uh, and looking rather sexy. You're damn right, I am. Okay, um, so the worst idea is a pretty great one for me because I can bring science to the conversation. Yay! Um, Only since I've met you am I excited by science because now I know science (laughs) equals lunatics, sex and inappropriate behaviour. Before I thought it was all physics and shit. Yeah, there's there's, there's sadly no sex in this, but we do have some lunatics and we do have some seriously inappropriate behaviour. Um, so as people know, my PhD is in nuclear stuff and I'm going to go and pick nuclear weapons. Um, and I could go on about how these are dangerous and powerful, and how they've only ever been used twice in anger, and there is a general consensus they should never be used again. But what about other uses? So welcome to the insanity of Operation Plowshare, and in particular, Project Long Jump, the plan to use nuclear bombs to terraform Antarctica. <laughs> um, so after the Second World War, there was an explosion, if you pardon the pun, in plans to use nukes. Uh, various science fiction writers came up with grand ideas, including using nuclear bombs to move hurricanes from their path. An idea that is so impossible, I was about to swear there, can't do with a kid in the room, so yeah. impossible, Donald Trump suggested it recently on Twitter. Uh, one of my favourites, proposed by Friedrich Bassler, was to use atom bombs to blast a route from the Med to the Katara Depression in Egypt, which could then be dammed creating the world's largest hydroelectric power plant to power all of Africa. Unsurprisingly, Egypt told him to cack off. (laughs) But it wasn't until 1961 that we get Operation Plowshare, which took its name from the Book of Micah's Turning Swords into Plowshares. Led by Edward Teller, the idea was to come up with the use for nuclear weapons that wasn't purely offensive. So at first, the U.S. plan was to use nuclear bombs to carve out roadways and create grand engineering projects without a large workforce. Uh, This was investigated heavily from Lawrence Livermore in California, where Tedler was based, until someone pointed out that maybe detonating bombs near the San Andreas Fault and accidentally blowing California off the continental U.S. wasn't a good idea. So instead, they changed tactics and began to look at smaller scale and even grander projects. Uh, In total... Uh, the project sent off 27 nuclear bombs, uh, most of which went off underground. This included a single blast in New Mexico as part of Project Gas Buggy, 
which was an attempt to use nuclear bombs for fracking. Uh, it contaminated an area 55 miles east of Framingham and is still radioactive and essentially unlivable because of the dangers to the groundwater there. The US also used subsurface bombs as part of Project Sedan, which was seismic surveying, an idea the Soviets copied in their version, which was just called nuclear explosions for the national economy because communism is boring. They detonated 200 bombs underground until the 1980s. But these are all the relatively small stuff. Let's talk about the big bangs. So the most successful of the US programs was Project Chariot, which blasted a new harbor into the coastline of Alaska near Cape Thompson in 1961. Edward Teller was particularly excited about this one, telling the locals that we're gonna hold a huge nuclear blast in Alaska that would be a fitting overture to the new era which is opening up for your state. In total, five 10 kiloton devices were detonated at the site, creating a harbor on the north coast of Alaska. This proved to be a colossal waste of time. The local Noah attack population were opposed to the idea and they had to be relocated because of the contamination. It also quickly emerged that there was absolutely cackle use for a natural harbor on the north coast of Alaska. So instead, the US had just blown a bloody big hole in their country for absolutely no reason. But this didn't stop Teller from considering it a proof of concept success. And so he pursued Project Long Jump. It was quite simply a plan to detonate a series of bombs in Antarctica to remove the ice, change the climate and provide habitable land. The ice in Antarctica, Columbia Professor Ryle Astik explained, was an unnatural condition similar to having a common cold affecting the earth in its head and feet. The US began extensive surveys as part of Long Jump, including along the Ross Ice Shelf, to determine the best place for the bombs, the required yield and the potential effect on climate. This was thought that with their nukes, they could open up a seventh continent for human habitation, or at least very, provide a very large non-affiliated land that could be used for farming and governed by the UN, thus sustaining the world as a sort of giant southern breadbasket. Now, Project Long Jump got to the final approval stage, which required joint sign-off by the Atomic Energy Commission chair, Glenn Seaborg, who was the discoverer of plutonium and knew a hell of a lot about nuclear weapons, and the president, JFK. However, before it could be signed off, JFK was assassinated. It probably wouldn't have gone ahead because Seaborg was against the plan anyway, mainly because he hated Edward Teller, but also because he thought it was, quote, dumb as rocks and the stuff of wild fantasy. His best mate in Washington was Lyndon Johnson. And when the latter suddenly found himself president, the plan was nixed. Shortly after, Johnson signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, uh, which prevented surface testing, effectively ending any hope Teller had of sending off nukes in Antarctica. Project Plowshares Underground Arm didn't stop until 1977, though, costing the US around $770 million in cleanup fees for precisely zero net gain. And today, we know that Antarctica isn't just a load of ice. Astique was beyond wrong. It is vital for Earth's ecosystem. If JFK hadn't been assassinated or Seawall wasn't in position, it is possible the US would have triggered bombs all over the continent, effectively advancing global warming by somewhere in the region of 150 years overnight. It might not have happened, but that's not the point. It is, without question, the dumbest idea in history. It's, it's pretty fucking atrocious isn't it Alina I just started eating as you said my name that's why I did it I could tell you're so mean 
Um, bombing shit, nuclear weapons, crazy people. Kit's got it down to a fine art now. <laughs> yeah. <Not> wrong. <laughs> um, except you're getting some minus points for the shitty comments you've been making about Poland in the comments I, section. I, I, I just said that going on, going to a you know, package holiday to Poland is a bad idea. Historically, I'm very, very correct. I mean, look at the amount of times that Poland has been invaded, attacked, uh, various atrocities. It's just, yeah, it's not the place to be. Probably and also that, in the top 50 destinations for package holidays, just saying. And also that comment about turning me into some sort of communist laughing stock. That's also a minus point for you for that. <laughs> what you st- all I said was, we've got enough material on this podcast. That if you edit it carefully, it, say, it just sounds like you going, communism, I love it, I love it, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might do that just for shits and giggles. We'll take all of make comments, a soundboard. Yeah, and make a different uh, make them answer to something. I did that to her once before on a podcast. I made a really funny joke and she didn't fucking laugh and it annoyed me. So I found a disproportionate laugh somewhere else on another podcast and edited it in so that it sounded like she found it way too funny and it made her look silly and I put it out like that. <laughs> Such a insert incredible horrible swear word in this right the kid's gone oh what a fucking bell end (laughs) (laughs) locky any questions yeah i how how soon into the kind of (laughs) oh my word hello the kid wasn't gone yeah How soon into the whole kind of testing process was the danger of radiation known? Oh, they knew about the danger of radiation beforehand. Um, right. But what you've got to remember is that the yields that they were using, the radiation is dissipated. So the Trinity test, which was the first bomb, uh, which was in July 16th, 1945, that's perfectly fine to go up to now. I have been to the site that that was, was bombed. The radiation goes. It's not something that lingers around. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it just seems like the, the use of um, extremely dangerous and contaminating things for civil engineering projects uh, is somewhat counterintuitive, and there'd be some pretty smart people involved in this process. Oh, no, Edward Teller's incredibly smart. Um, so what you're talking about, essentially, is, is, uh, is um, uh, fission, is nuclear fission. And what you want to have is more complete fission. So if you, if you have complete fission, you can basically just get rid of all, everything. Um, and he was very much an advocate for thermonuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs, which get rid of the fission more effectively and give you a bigger bang. Um, by changing the yield of your bomb, by going for kilotons rather than megatons, and that's kilotons are the things that were used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you can actually get rid of the radiation relatively quickly. Uh, we're not talking about dirty bombs. So with a dirty bomb, you have incomplete fission. Um, they're much easier to do uh, to create but they do make the radiation last a long, long, long time because they haven't got that bomb. So actually the smarter you get, the less radiation you have. Very good. It sounds utterly moronic. Uh, no further questions. Yeah, Locke is up, but I cannot argue any further because it's all sciencey and shit. <laughs> I love it's it. It's like, oh God, science. Sorry. <laughs> right. Tonight I have saved what is I know is going to be the best in terms of, I don't know if it's the best worst idea, but certainly um, possibly the best presentation coming right up. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Clive O'Connell's Masterpiece Theatre. My goodness, I think I've been oversold on this. (laughs) But still, I'll do my very best. I want to talk about an idea, a well-meant, kind and thoroughly decent idea, 
that was to have devastating consequences for the entire people of a continent. I am, of course, talking about the idea that some kindly person, indigenous to Massachusetts Bay and North America, had, when deciding it would be a good idea, to take some corn and other food to the then starving Pilgrim Fathers, and in so doing, allowed for the survival of the Plymouth colony, for the massive wave of migration that followed, and, devastatingly, for the near extermination of the indigenous people of North America. Let's imagine ourselves back in 1620, so 400 years ago, and living among the tribes of the Norset people. The land and the sea are bounteous. Vast shoals of cod swim through the calm ocean waters. Turkeys run freely around on the land where the corn grows as high as an elephant's eye, except that the Nausset have never seen an elephant. Cranberries float on shallow ponds in marshier areas, just waiting to be scooped up and potatoes grow fat in the rich soil. The tranquility of this surfy paradise has recently been disturbed. Pale-faced men from far away arrive every now and then on huge ships to collect water, trade and occasionally venture further. Some were downright hostile. One, Thomas Hunt, had arrived and carried off a number of the nearby Batusik from across the bay and taken them over the ocean to Spain where they'd been sold as slaves. One of them, Tisquantum, also known as Squanto, had escaped somehow, made his way home beforehand to find his tribe all dead from disease brought by the Europeans. And so in, late, in the late autumn of 1620, the sight of a ship's mast in the sheltered cove at the end of the Cape, where they now sit lived, must have evoked terror among those people. At first they watched, and then they crept close, and fired arrows at the intruders. They were met with bullets. The effect must have caused panic and bewilderment. The Nauset retreated, and kept observing as the people from the ship showed no signs of leaving. It is what the Nauset did next that is the most bewildering. I invite you to imagine the scene. The village, close to the landing site of the Pilgrim Fathers, the tribal elders sit around to discuss what they should do. Their usual discussions were, no doubt, about important but now seemingly mundane subjects, such as when to go fishing or to harvest crops. Now the dis discussion was, even though they might not have known it, existential. I should pause here to say that I don't know, and I'm not sure anyone alive today knows what accent the Nausic people used. They certainly didn't speak English. So what follows is not an educated guess of what they would have sounded like. It is instead the best I can manage, which is not very good. Anyway, here goes. Kit's face is brilliant. I love it. <laughs> I don't like the look of that big boat. Usually they go after a couple of days, but these ones are different. They look as though they're, they're staying. Yeah, I think you're right. Have you noticed? They're all dressed differently from the ones who came before. Woolly black with comical acts. And they got women with them. That can't be good. What do you mean? Women are equally capable of navigation as men. I really don't understand why you have to reduce every discussion to an affirmation of the patriarchy. Oh, uh, no, I didn't mean that. I meant that in bringing women with them, 
it shows that they're not about to return home to their families. We all saw they had kids with them too. That means they brought their families with them. What are they up to? Are they on holiday or something? Not this lot. I've never seen such a miserable looking group in my life. They seem to spend half their time on their knees or listening to one of them ranting at them. Very strange. Not your typical spring break crowd. What are they doing on their knees? Nothing that you would ever do on, do on your knees, darling. They seem to mumble a lot. Mumble? Not the type of behaviour we want round here. Um, so if they brought their families and aren't on their holidays, what on earth are they doing here? Perhaps they've been slung out of where they've come from for being plain weird. It wouldn't surprise me the least. Least. They are certainly decidedly odd. Well, if they were too weird for whatever they came from, from wherever they came from, they're certainly too weird for here. Um, well, not, well, we tried to show them away, but they brought out those loud, long baggy sticks that throw small stones very fast. They want to be careful what they do with them. Could have a, could have an eye out. Or worse. Yes, but you went out and shot arrows at them. Can't really be surprised if they retaliated. All right, all right. But what should we do? Build a wall. Isn't that what they are doing? They seem to have put a wall up around the little houses they've built. Send them back. How are we going to do that? We don't even know where they came from. And anyway, if we try to push, push them off, those long bangy things will come into play. So what shall we do then? We can't just leave them there mumbling away. Well, we could. What? Just leave them there? Yeah, leave them there. What? Just let them have some of our land. Give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Nah, if we just leave them there, I think they'll soon decide to up sticks and go home. Why would they do that? But haven't you noticed? They're living in the middle of cornfields and turkey runs, cod jumping out the bay, and cranberries so abundant, your pea could turn pink. And yet they don't seem to eat any of it. They just sit in their compounds and eat whatever they brought on their ship. Typical bloody tourists. Want to see the world, but don't want to eat no foreign muck. Um, so, how long can they keep doing that? Can't be too much longer. Then they get hungry and go home. They're getting nothing fresh to eat, and they have children to look after. Yeah? Well, that's just miserable, the poor young things. Well, perhaps we could separate the kids from their parents and feed them here. We could build cages for them. That would be cruel. We had to do something. We need to take back control. Long baggy things or no long baggy things. Um, I've got an idea. Idea? No, really, I have an idea. Well, we better hear it then. Um, why don't we take some turkey and some corn and some cranberries, possibly a couple of spuds, and take them over to them and show them how to catch turkey and harvest corn and how to cook up cranberries into a wonderful sauce and mashed potatoes. Then we could talk to them, find out what they're intending to do and perhaps persuade them to do whatever it is that they're trying to do somewhere else, like back in their own homes. Well, at least the little kiddies wouldn't starve that way. 
Perhaps they haven't got enough food for their journey home. This would give them a way to stock up. Well, no one else has got any bright ideas. Okay, let's try it. And so they did. And the pilgrims, who were losing members rapidly to hunger and disease, survived the winter and went on to flourish. Others joined them. In the 1630s alone, 4% of the population of England moved to the Massachusetts colony. Within a short while, the now city had all died from disease. Within 250 years, most of the indigenous population of North America had been wiped out by disease or war, and those that survived were packed off to small reservations and poverty, their way of life destroyed. And all because one kindly Native American had the generous idea of showing the Pilgrim Fathers how to live off the land. A generous idea, one could say a Christian idea, but for the benefit of hindsight, a truly disastrous, a catastrophic idea. <laughs> Round of applause from everybody there. Outstanding. How many individual roles were there there, Clive? There were four. Really? I think I got, I got a bit mixed up at sometimes and kind of one elided into another. I did think of sending it around to a few people and getting people to play different parts, but I was running out of time and couldn't really be asked. No, don't, don't share the limelight, Clive, don't ever. Uh, John, how did you feel about that accurate representation of your country's history? Well, it's accurate up to a point, but we're, we're debating <laughs> an idea. And I, uh, while, while I was hearing Clive go through that, I came up with five different ideas, that, uh, different countermeasures that could have solved the problems had the Native Americans just thought of them. One, put up a pilgrim-proof fence. <laughs> Two, mm-hmm. let the noble, local nobles hunt them for sport. <laughs> Three, don't let them in in breeding pairs. Four, separate the male colonist from the female after birth. Keep him nearby and able to nuzzle his mate through a physical barrier so she doesn't become stressed. And five, import French and Spanish colonies to keep the population of English under control. All good ideas. Bravo, bravo, John. I like that adaption. Almost, it could have all come up very differently, couldn't it? Lockie, what say you? Um, well, firstly, I think um, in the same way as the crown is being forced to uh, highlight the fact that it is fiction, I think we're possibly going to need to do that with this podcast as well, because that was such an accurate <laughs> depiction of, of, of certainly how I envisage It was more that. accurate than season four of The Crown, and it was just Clive asking about. He didn't have the budget of The Crown, and he was still more accurate than series four. <laughs> Um, so there's things that I liked and there's things that I'm, not, I'm less sure about. Um, firstly, trying to blind us with science using terms like long, bangy things. Um, uh, he got that from Peter Hart. That is an official Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> too, much, too much Peter Hart history, I think. Um, does cranberry turn your pee pink? I don't know. I've never had enough of it. Mm. Can you prove it doesn't, in autumn have cranberries floating all over them it must have been quite impressive in those days <laughs> but it would have been quite alien to english settlers they wouldn't have had any kidney problems either mm. um what was my other question uh so we established that the women had the bad idea was it yeah <laughs> but he did mitigate no, 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 that it with the... the woman was the nice one but it was it was one of the other one of the male voices that had the bad idea. Ah, I was quite it. careful about that. 
And he did exactly. mitigate it by criticising the patriarchy at the beginning as well, which I really liked. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Alina, any questions? Um, first of all, Clive, I've got to say, not a bad Cockney accent. I'm kind of, oh, there's room for a bit of improvement and we can coach you with that. But overall, I'm quite impressed. Oh, cheers, my love. <laughs> I love it. Downstairs to the Matthew Harding lower if you want to perfect it, I think. They, they did all seem to have Polish accents like Elena. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the Polish accent are we talking? No, I can't even do it. I can't even. Sorry, I can't. Oh, my <laughs> That's God. That's sounding like an awful <laughs> Russian accent. <laughs> oh, I can't do Polish one. It doesn't work. I, can, I, can, I keep trying to speak RP correctly, but unfortunately, um, it does keep sliding back to my typical East London. I, I did once have a situation where I was speaking to an American he said, oh, I had a phone call from someone. I wasn't sure whether it was you or so-and-so. I said, he said, I can't tell the difference between your accents. What's the difference? I said, many thousands of pains of education. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually, I have now started to terrify the shit out of Bertie and Reggie because every morning I greet them with that telephone greeting from the crown that the Queen loses on Princess Margaret. And I just go, hello, you. And they look at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Any other questions? I'm good. I loved it, though. Love you, Clive. Keep doing this every week. Well, if you haven't got the content, you might as well go for the presentation. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Okay. As ever, while our judges make up their minds about what the worst idea in history is based on this discussion, uh, which started off seriously and ended up like pretty much like all of our other discussions. <laughs> and, um, uh, I think John deserves a special side award for his five ways in which the uh, Native Americans could have got shot. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go around the room and ask you all if you could um, not have your choice what you think the worst idea in history is. So let's start with John. Nuking Antarctica because I love penguins. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, Kit. Um, probably going to go with uh, with with some like communism, I guess. I mean, you can't really argue against the the, the disaster that communism is. Um, uh, I missed I missed half of them. So bullshit. I mean, Germans in uh, in Easter Island. Yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm sure they went to Falklands, but no. Yeah, I that was new to me as well. Uh, James, it has to be nuking Antarctica that it got so far like <sighs> yeah although clive you was a close second you just overdid it a bit unfortunately oh, there's no such thing <laughs> <laughs> kate um i uh, i think the special award needs to go to chris um for his professionalism and clive for his accent <laughs> um i want to choose Charlie, because she had the same kind of similar idea uh, to me, but I think communism kind of beats them all a little bit. Any ideas on what the element of bullshit was tonight? Um, The the German naval Easter Island thing. What? what? Sorry, because my signal was terrible, so I missed half of all of them. But um, yeah, the the German naval one was a bit bit off to me. Back. For me, it's got to be nuking Antarctica, um, just because it's mental. Um, <laughs> and uh, at heart, there's a little bit of me that thinks, well, if humans just weren't complete arseholes, then perhaps some form of Marxism or communism might have been able to work. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I can't go with the communism on this. Um, 
bullshit. I think it's got to be Chris. I missed half of it, unfortunately. I'm very sorry, Chris. Um, well played for keeping going whilst the kids were going, yeah, 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 in the background, because that was hilarious. Um, yeah, if you put it in the Falklands, I kind of vaguely rings a bell, maybe, but not East Island. Sorry. Clive, uh, no, yeah, Clive, you go. It's got to be the nuclear the penguins, because that was, if that had happened, it would have been spectacular, and we wouldn't have been around to talk about it. It would have been an ending for our whole race and would have been spectacular. Charlie? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's been some big topics come up tonight, but the idea of, of nuking um, bits of the country to try and change the, to, to make a tunnel easier, I mean, and plus the whole San Andreas Fault thing, correct me if I'm wrong, but did not Lex Luthor try that in Superman? Yeah, didn't end well. Well, <laughs> it did, uh, did end well, but Superman turned the James the Bond film also. I they think... It wasn't Bowie. It was uh, there was some bill. Oh, Christopher Walken, I think, wanted to do yeah. that too. They're doing, they're that was terraforming a bomb, yeah. Antarctica and the other end in uh, the newest Superman, aren't they? I don't watch the newest Superman. Oh, the one with Henry Cavill. No idea. Yeah, I, I like looking at Henry Cavill, but he's no Christopher Reeve. And as for bullshit, come on, it's got to be Zach. No one would be that stupid as to try and invade Russia in winter. <laughs> so I, I'm calling bullshit on that. <laughs> Oh, this is really interesting. Chris, what about you? Um, I think when it comes to big idea big ideas going wrong, um, you know, anything that causes lots of amount of death is bad. But let's be honest, if you're gonna go big, go really big. And let's nuke Antarctica. <laughs> that has to be the best stupid idea ever. And who's bullshitting? Um Yeah, the as much as I find it funny that the idea of California being blasted away, there is that element of i'm sure i have seen that in a movie somewhere now uh, probably I, I don't know <laughs> let's find out we will find out very soon right alina and Lockie, who do you think is bullshitting yeah so actually we thought that while there may have been elements of um kit's story which were true I, I i'm i'm not sure nuking antarctica really was a serious yeah. option to so many smart men so i think that's the bullshit Bullshit, I raise your hand. It was yeah. Kit and oh, everybody man. else fell for it. <laughs> oh my God. So, so Project Plowshare is absolutely true. Everything I said up to setting up bombs in Alaska was completely real. They did look at bombing the, the San Andreas Fault. Um, they did look at engineering projects. You, you can actually get rid of the radiation. I mean, Hiroshima now has millions of people living there. That's not a problem. Um, Teller did want to set up bombs in, Antar- in, um, in Alaska. Um, but it was rejected by the local population because they didn't want to be radioactive and they didn't want to be uh, displaced. No one looked at bombing Antarctica. That's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, this is from true. the same people that greenlighted the Vietnam War, though, so it was plausible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. To, to be fair, I didn't realise we had a bullshitter this week. I thought this was the one week we weren't. <laughs> no, no, there's always bullshit in this room, James. Uh, right, no, that's okay. true. Judges, let's see who you've gone for. Who has won in this battle for history's worst idea? So we were actually unanimous. Alina's going to do the top two, um, and I'm taking third place because uh, Alina's worried about either losing Polish citizenship or going to hell or, or something. <laughs> oh, you, you um, go first. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we're, we're naming Kate as third place. Um, 
for a, for a very kind of spirited uh, discussion starter, apart from anything else, um, but also kind of the the manner in which religion has been abused uh, can can make it a, a bad idea. I would say. Thank you. Uh, our second place goes to someone who knows the judges extremely well. Uh, and knows exactly what to say at the right moment to uh, stroke the judge's ego just that little bit more. Um, and also, it was a very good argument and very, very true. So, Zach, welcome to second place. Um, <laughs> our first place, well, you all know who I've gone for for first place. I don't know why we're going to be discussing this. <laughs> it is John with communism, because communism is like the worst idea in the world. So... Congratulations, John. We, we keep looking back fondly to the Cold War days when we had something to do that was uh, that, that kept us out of uh, really stupid ideas afterward, like, <laughs> our, like the people we elect. Just a, a, an American bashing communism as well. I'm looking forward to our next cliche uh, next week. I, I hope it's going to be Frenchman in beret with blue and white striped <laughs> jumper and a string of onions around his neck or, or something like that. But, um, well, Marx is back next week, isn't he? So... what are we doing for next week alex next week we are doing history's greatest building now you can take this one of two ways you can go for a building that's awesome because it's an awesome building or i guess you could go for a building that's awesome because of something that happened inside i'm not going to pinpoint it specifically that's just history's greatest building so you interpret it as you will this is Lockie's idea, isn't it, Lockie? Uh, yeah, I've, I've flung a few ideas out there, and uh, and this is. No one wants to admit to any of these being their ideas. <laughs> Holmes came up with one, and you all crapped on it from a great height. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from James, who did a week of prep because he didn't realise we'd changed our minds. Uh, right, okay. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we shall bow on towards Christmas with our Down the Pub specials. Uh, hope to welcome some regular faces back next week, and indeed anyone else that wants to join us. Until then, we will see you later. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year we are now on youtube we are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe here's a cool fact A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.